thank you very much, Dean Tucker, for your welcome. I hope you can all hear me. I'm a little deaf from jet lag. Um, I just arrived back from Rome and more or less went straight to Hartford to get my flight to Dallas and eventually to Waco. Um, Waco calls and you have to answer. Um, <laughs> it was also my privilege this morning to meet the um, parchments on the way in and I thank them for their um, generosity and interest in this seminary. Uh, today I want to share with you some thoughts and have a conversation about the role of America in the emergence of world Christianity, an unprecedented movement in the history of the religion, probably as significant as the turning, the conversion movement in the early church from a Jewish setting into a Gentile Greek world. Many historians, I think, are surprised about the New World roots of world Christianity, this extraordinary resurgence that has engulfed much of the world today. But I think after these lectures, I hope that those uh, feelings will be laid aside and you and I will be able to appreciate developments in America having such global impact. At the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War, John Murray, who was the Earl of Dunmore, issued a proclamation in Norfolk Harbor in Virginia in November 1775, promising freedom to blacks to joining the Loyalist forces. The Continental Congress, in, his, in its haphazard ad hoc setting, reacted swiftly with instructions to mount an armed resistance to the order with instructions to General Washington to lead the opposition. Virginia was handed a resolution to resist Dunmore, whose declarations, Washington said, made him the most formidable enemy America has. His strength will increase as a snowball by rolling. Among the framers and the signers of the Declaration of Independence in July 1776, the signers of the Declaration had been deeply affected by the slavery question. Among them, many of them owned slaves, James Madison, Benjamin Harrison, Arthur Middleton, and George Washington himself, who at the time of his death owned over 380 slaves. Slavery then was a matter that touched deeply um, the interest of the founders of the New Republic. Jefferson reported that Virginia had lost some 30,000 slaves as a result of Dunmore's uh, declaration. When the time may, came to make good his word, Dunmore abandoned Williamsburg, the colonial capital of Virginia, and boarded the foreway in the in Yorktown Harbor in June 1775, a signal that slaves could abandon their masters and follow him. Perhaps uh, the, the stampede that was feared uh, never actually happened, um, and we could probably estimate that only 
uh, 800 slaves ended up serving at sea uh, with the limitations of seaborne life uh, for these slaves. These black troops were called Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian Regiment. Commander-in-Chief uh, Henry Clinton of New York in 1779 issued the Phillipsburg Proclamation promising freedom. The expected universal stampede again never took place, though it produced significant movement among the blacks. Perhaps 100,000 blacks, one-fifth of the total black population of America, responded by joining the British side. Then, following the great battle, Washington had been sharpening his swords uh, already um, for Yorktown in 1781. And finally, Yorktown capitulated in 1782 with the evacuation of 5,000 blacks uh, with the British lines. And the British felt unabound to make good their promise of freedom for these blacks. But where would they go? On December 14, 1782, the British evacuated Charleston, South Carolina, with just over 5,300 blacks, half of them actually bound for Jamaica. From East Florida, some 2,200 left for the Bahamas and 700 for Jamaica, and then 35 absconded to England. In fact, between 1775 and 1787, the black population of Jamaica increased by some 60,000, just to show what a significant demographic movement was afoot. I want to pause now to flag a very important intellectual change in the moral climate about slavery at this time, a change that the American Revolution highlighted and in many respects bolstered. This new phase has as one of its formative influences the 18th century evangelical awakening, whose coalescence with anti-slavery and with other social movements produced a pro profound shift in moral sentiments and ignited a transatlantic campaign against the slave trade. As far back as the 17th century, anti-slavery sentiments circulated freely in religious and humanitarian circles. The American Jesuit, Alonzo de Sandoval, denounced slavery already in 1610 as a violation of the God-given right of human freedom. Slavery, he contended, was rife with everything that degraded human beings and as such stood condemned in God's law. Similarly, the exertions in the late 17th century of Lorenzo de Silva de Mendoza, an Afro-Brazilian, uh, was on behalf of his fellow blacks who were held in slavery in Brazil and in Lisbon, made a deep impact on the papal curia, leading the um, papal curia to issue a strong condemnation of slavery and the slave trade. Now, these were all significant things, but really, as anti-slavery ideas, they had very little effect because they had never attained what sociologists would call social scale. And so they never merged to produce a historical movement. That happened only 
after the mid-18th century, when throngs of Africans, slave and free, flocked to what they called revival religion and imbibed the message of itinerant preachers, Methodists, Baptists, and others, and lay leaders especially. The coming of the American Revolution handed these blacks the welcome opportunity of combining religion with freedom, and thus with the transatlantic anti-slavery efforts which were then gathering momentum in England. Historians would know that Liverpool um, in northern England was the, really the headquarters um, of the commercial uh, traffic in slaves. And Liverpool, you'd also remember, was the home of the father of William Gladstone and his grandfather. Gladstone had become Prime Minister of England many, many times. There's a wonderful library, by the way, that is collected not far from Liverpool. I know Liverpool is not on your tourist map when you visit Europe, but if you are interested in following this trail, uh, his library, I gather, is still worth visiting. In any case, the, um, the new language of religion produced in America was seeded with sentiments of the moral elevation of those who are held in bondage and captivity. And this view was very different from old world ideas of society and religion, in which, as David Brian Davis, colleague at Yale, has argued, slavery and bondage were accorded a respectable place in society. In that older European view, very few people questioned the place of slavery in the workings of civilized society. And it was that settled consensus and its supporting Christian frame that the evangelical movement in the New World and elsewhere disrupted once and for all. It was a turning point in the history of free institutions. Various strategies were designed to resist anti-slavery and to preserve the Christian status quo, but they failed. And this explains, I think, the appeal of evangelical religion to slaves, captives, and free blacks, among others. And thanks to the work of John and Charles Wesley, popular evangelical piety soon, soon possessed a growing mass of hymns and songs with the music and movement to go with them, which was the most substantial in any modern language, and that for the first time connected Christianity to slaves and captives yearning for physical and spiritual deliverance. The free floating sentiment about poor suffering Africans and the flickering impulse of its amelioration hardened into a robust organized religious and humanitarian response. The work of the, of the Wesleys met this rising need with force and focus. Their newly minted hymns and songs did not rely on learning or high culture or even pedigree to understand them. And the music that went with them made the memorization of these hymns virtually a matter of routine usage and habit. At an important conference in May 1783 at Orangetown on the Hudson River to discuss the matter of slaves as American property, these sentiments were very much to the fore. At that conference, 
George Washington, flanked, among others, by George Clinton, New York's very able war governor, uh, had a conversation with Sir Guy uh, Carlton, the British commander-in-chief. Washington reminded Carlton that it was contrary to the terms of the treaty signed the previous November to remove from the country blacks and anything else that might be considered the property of Americans. Carlton responded that the blacks who had taken advantage of the proclamations for freedom had the right to be embarked, admitting that some had already left under, the under, under that understanding. George Washington demanded compliance with the spirit and the letter of the treaty, of which the seventh article stipulated, I quote, that his, Brita his Britannic Majesty shall with all convenient speed and without causing any destruction or carrying away Negroes or other property of the American inhabitants, withdraw all his armies, garrisons, and fleets from the said United States. Carlton's interpretation of this article amounted to an attack on the property rights of Americans, George Washington charged. Carlton drew a fine distinction, saying that the article referred only to slaves who belonged to Americans, not to blacks in general. Thus, on this very narrow interpretation, slaves who joined the British side were deemed free, so they were not slaves, according to the language of the British, so that by their action, they seized in a legal sense to be the property of Americans. Carlton insisted to George Washington, no interpretation could be sound that was inconsistent with prior engagements of the faith and honor of the nation, which he should inviolably maintain with people of all colors and conditions. If Britain took George Washington's view, Carlton continued, his records would make full compensation possible so that the slave would have his freedom, his liberty, his master, his prize, and the nation support of its honor. To General Washington's dismay, Washington had mumbled to himself, I have discovered to convince me that the slaves which have absconded from their masters will never be restored. He suspected the British of bad faith. Carlton responded that to abandon the blacks who had acted on Britain's word would be, in Carlton's word, a dishonorable violation of the public faith, and that Britain would be prepared to make monetary restitution in lieu of turning over the blacks. Such blacks, however, formed only a small fraction of the slaves. The Continental Congress, that got reports, daily reports from George Washington, um, replied that Washington should abolish the commission altogether, cease negotiating with the British, and return to Philadelphia immediately. Grievances over the question of slavery continued to sour relations with Britain for over half a century. Although, I think it's remember that Alexander Hamilton in the Congress had been a lone voice that had supported the British position on this. At any rate, here are some statistics to show you the scale of what was involved. The embarkation process began in August 1782. 4,000 whites, 7,000 blacks assembled in Charleston, South Carolina, 
awaiting departure instructions, which came in March 1783, and affected only 259 whites, 65 children, and 24 slaves who left for Halifax. We think that the American Revolution happened and ended in 1776. In fact, it was the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the American Revolution. <laughs> we tend to forget this. And the Hartford Compromise was 1782. Um, in New York, matters proceeded uh, very smoothly. By the way, Canada at this time was still part of the British Empire. And so slaves who went to Canada, in a sense, uh, moved on the British jurisdiction. Britain remained determined to make good on its word with the free blacks who fought for it. Life in Nova Scotia, in Canada, and other settlements, pretty hard. And so Britain was faced with the question, what do you do with these free blacks, so-called free blacks? Um, the idea was to give them land in Nova Scotia, which the slaves, now freed, would cultivate. But cultivation, agriculture in Nova Scotia, as you would know from your history, is not a very attractive proposition whatsoever. Um, there were several movements to organize colonies in West Africa to send free blacks as carriers of the gospel. A disciple of Jonathan Edwards, Samuel Hopkins, for example, a minister in Rhode Island, had devised a plan with the president of Yale, Ezra Stiles, and Witherspoon of Princeton to send free blacks to West Africa to begin a colony there. Why was that important for the evangelical movement and the anti-slavery movement? Well, that was important because no matter how effective Americans were at attacking slavery at the point of the demand, that is say in the New World, in Brazil, in the United States and elsewhere, in America before the United States, no matter how effective, if you don't deal with the supply end of the slave trade, you're not going to be very effective. And so creating a colony in Africa, in West Africa, at the source of the slave trade, would deliver a very powerful blow against the forces of slavery. And that was why the evangelical movement and the anti-slavery movement combined, logically, and to prove that legitimate trade, honest labor, labor, work is dignity, would show the benefits of enterprise and therefore suppress the interest of human merchandise in slavery. The question, however, then was what to do with the Nova Scotian blacks, American, um, African-Americans, who were now really very disappointed with the promise of the British to give them freedom. It was out of this ferment, uh, the coalescence of the American Revolution, the anti-slavery movement, um, and the evangelical movement, it was out of this coalescence that New Hope was born for creating a viable settlement in West Africa. Let me give you a few of the names of these African-American pioneers uh, about whom we know a great deal. 
One of them was Thomas Peters. And he had been uh, a pioneer with uh, Equiano uh, in moving the anti-slavery movement from Britain to Africa. Peters fled in 1776 from his master and joined the British, uh, drawn by the promise of freedom. He was twice wounded in battle. He survived the war when he and his wife went to Nova Scotia. Then he left Nova Scotia, arrived in London in 1791, the year of the death of, Charles, of, of John Wesley. I think it was also the year of the death of Mozart. They have no connection, anyway. Um, but when he went to London, he took a petition with him with the grievances of the Nova Scotians, saying that Britain must do better by giving them a place to settle uh, in Africa. Um, he was very warmly received by the organized efforts of the anti-slavery movement in the, in the United Kingdom. Um, William Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, uh, and others, people very high up uh, in the uh, establishment. Peters was admired by the anti-slavery forces in England. His eloquence, his passion, said a London newspaper, being, um, made him the rage of the world, the latest fashionable craze, and the nearest object of philanthropy. For me, this is proof that the anti-slavery sentiment had become a social movement. <laughs> it was no longer private individuals declaring that this was an evil against the law of God, etc., etc., without any effect on society. The anti-slavery movement became embodied in faces, in people, in events, and took off. And therefore, it was no longer the case that to fight slavery, you had to have you know, masses of support and money and so forth. It was the fact that there was a moral change in the climate produced by the evangelical movement. Um, and this had an effect totally on the way Europe saw itself in the world. But that's another story. I think we still have to do a lot more work, I think, on the historical consequences of what Adam Smith called the founding of the new world. America, he said, the discovery of America uh, is going to change the world. He said, we've already seen the effects. He was writing in 1776. Can you believe it? <laughs> he said, we've already seen the effects of the founding of the discovery of America in these last three centuries and projected, prophesied, that in the next three centuries, America is going to have an impact the like of which the world has never seen. And how right he was. I didn't know economists and moral philosophers were also prophets. Um, Thomas Peters, back to Thomas Peters. He was born in Nigeria uh, as an Egba Yoruba. He was kidnapped in 1760, uh, sold to a French ship. Peters arrived in French Louisiana. His French master sold him to an Englishman. By 1770, he had been sold again, this time to William Campbell in Wilmington, North Carolina, the seat of Hanover County, where Peters learned his trade as a millwright. The war approached Wilmington in 1776, and the city was evacuated in February. Peters joined the British side to effect his freedom. 
Enlisted in the Regiment of the Black Pioneers, he was present at the British bombardment of Charleston, South Carolina, in the summer of 1776, and was with the British when they moved to take Philadelphia at the end of 1776. You remember George Washington saying, ah, yeah, uh, the strategy, military strategy, was to allow the British to think that taking Philadelphia would actually be a major prize, whereas it would merely absorb <laughs> the forces, the British forces, and distract them um, from the real price of America. The advantage of America in Washington's thinking was space. <laughs> the town, the cities, ah, they can go and take them. But uh, the fact that there is so much more ground to cover gave the Americans uh, enormous strategic advantage about which the British were not aware, uh, dominated by the idea of the city at the center of civilization, you know, London, and then there as follows. And Washington said that it was an advantage to Americans uh, not to be invested. By the way, um, not many of his generals uh, agreed with Washington uh, on his strategic thinking, but he was really a genius um, in that respect. Uh, anyway, so much for Washington. In Canada, freedom was very hard to find. Peters um, and his people decided after experience in Canada that they would have to look beyond the governor uh, to complete their escape from freedom and to achieve the independence for which they fought. Peters returned um, from London to Nova Scotia to carry with him a plan to organize the blacks in Nova Scotia uh, ready for establishing a colony in West Africa. Um, John Claxon was the leader in Nova Scotia to take these blacks from the New World back to Africa, the land from which they had been enslaved. John Claxon was the brother of Thomas Claxon, you remember, the famous Thomas Claxon of Cambridge, uh, who was the leader of the anti-slavery movement, and he probably did more than any other individual to advance the cause of anti-slavery in Britain. Wilberforce takes the credit um, for, for it in Parliament. In any case, um, when these uh, blacks, 1,000, about 1,200 of them, left Nova Scotia in January 1792, an armada of 16 ships were carrying them across the Atlantic. The British government paid for the cost of their repatriation. Um, in 1792, it was 9,600 pounds, which today would be several hundred times that figure. Britain had a, a conscience about slavery because 60% of the trade in slaves was operated by, by the British. In March, three months later, this armada um, Christian Armada arrived in West Africa. And here is um, an account of how they landed um, in West Africa. Their pastors led them ashore, singing a hymn of praise like the children of Israel, which were come out again of the captivity. They rejoiced before the Lord, who brought them from bondage to the land of their forefathers. When all had arrived, the whole colony assembled in worship to proclaim to the continent whence they or their fathers had been carried in chains. The day of jubilee is come. 
return ye ransom sinners home. Evangelical, you can see. Evangelicalism as a force in the creation of free colonies in Africa, preceded by nearly 100 years, the idea of colonial rule by European powers. You know, because we often think that the real order of priorities was that the Bible followed the flag. Well, here, I think we see it is really the flag following the Bible. Um, it was the other way around. There were others of these African Americans. One of the most remarkable, again, was John Marant. Um, but I want to spare you the details of his life. He was living in Charleston, South Carolina, when the British took, um, uh, took the, uh, attacked the city. Uh, he had learned to play the French horn. He was an expert uh, and as a child. And then he had met George Whitfield, uh, the evangelical leader, uh, whose uh, preaching had a dramatic effect on him. And John Maran describes his wandering. It's almost like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, how he was wandering through the bush. He had nothing to eat, nothing to drink, um, because his conscience had been struck um, from his meeting with George Whitfield. Then he went among the Cherokee Indians uh, as a one-man mission movement, <laughs> um, preaching to them. Uh, and this performance so impressed the people that they spared his life. They were going to kill him. Um, Marant then went to London and stayed with um, friends in London, about two of whom we have some information. Um, then he met Lady Selina, the Countess of Huntingdon, and a relative of George Washington, Lady Selina. Very interesting woman. There's a biography of her life. She was related to George Washington. And rather rare in those days, Lady Selina was a pro-American. She supported the American Revolution, and which in those days was treason. She was a companion um, of John Wesley. She had been affected by John Wesley's preaching. She lived in Bath, uh, just north of Bristol, in the west of England, and founded a community of believers who were later called the Countess of Huntingdon's Connection. And Lady Selina was the first um, evangelical related uh, to the Methodist revival who began to ordain ministers of the Connection. John Wesley himself never did until Lady Selina did. <laughs> People interested in the feminist movement um, you know, have to realize that the roots go back very, very deep. And Lady Selina actually authorized John Moran to go back to Nova Scotia and introduce these ideas and doctrines among the blacks who took them to West Africa. And Lady Selina's community had, a, had more members in West Africa before the middle of the 19th century than they had in England, uh, the source of the movement. Uh, anyway, that's enough history about John Moran. Very interesting figure. Um, I want to now move, in a sense, from matters of chronology and narrative to consider a subject of enormous importance for mission and for anti-slavery. The establishment of the colony of Sierra Leone 
was important for the way in which the anti-slavery movement, the American Revolution, and the evangelical movement coalesced to bring about momentous change uh, on the ground. Later on, um, Christianity for the blacks um, became a religion that was freed from ideas of pedigree. You have to remember, for 300 years, missions in Africa and Asia, and Latin America, but especially Africa and Asia, were conducted on the premise that the most important thing for the church to do was to convert the ruler or the king, the nobility and the aristocracy. And that when you convert the king, the rest of society will be transformed thereafter. A kind of top-down view of mission of Christianity because it is a top-down view of society. Society was hierarchical. You have the king, the nobility, and you have the commoners, and you have others at the bottom. Christianity was tailored to mirror that hierarchical idea of society. New world ideas of religion, state, and society shook that very notion <laughs> of a top-down view of the faith. New world ideas said it is more important that slaves, former slaves, former captives, victim populations, women and children be converted to the faith and by their lives of productive enterprise, <clears throat> honesty, sobriety, hard work, um, taking care of the neighbor, uh, these examples would be so potent, so powerful, that they will change the rest of society, a bottom-up view. So you go to those who are at the bottom of the social ladder, transform them with the yeast of the gospel, and the, 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 the loaf that will come out of this will be completely transformed. And this view of state, church, and society marked the beginning of the modern history of Africa. And its culmination was the creation of a middle class, not the reinforcement of pedigree and privilege and the nobility, which was the case in Europe. You see, Constantine was the model <laughs> for Europe. Get a Constantine, get an emperor, get a prince, and if you have a devoured prince, uh, then society is safe. Society will be evangelized and everyone will become a Christian. The idea based on the notion of Cius Regio, Eus Religio, that the religion of the king is the religion of the people. And America changed this, destroyed it, in fact. <laughs> and it took some missions, including the Catholic Church, nearly 100 years to learn the lessons of this subtle shift of emphasis. And so Catholic missions in the 19th century under Francis Lieberman and others were creating free colonies, uh, colonies where slaves would be redeemed and placed uh, under Christian supervision in order to create a new model of society. Well, really they didn't learn the lesson because they were still working with the idea of hierarchy. Get, a, get an African chief, an African prince, uh, and then the rest of society will follow his example, and the church will have created an, uh, in Africa a Constantinian um, devout uh, convert uh, who would then change the rest of society. But, you know, ideas 
are hard to kill. In fact, you can say it is impossible to kill ideas. Uh, you can hound the people who produce these ideas, you can suppress them, uh, you can marginalize them, but you cannot kill the ideas themselves. It's really, once they take root, they're hard to kill. And so Christianity for the New World Africans was freed of its upscale <laughs> uh, social um, associations. Uh, to be Christian now meant to be transformed in your life and to be productive. One of the first institutions created in Freetown uh, was the rule of law and trial by jury. A new notion. In Europe, the juries were comprised of experts or people well-related, people who are really privileged in society. In America, the jury system was based on what? On, on ordinary folk citizens being chosen to serve on the jury so that a person who is accused, uh, charged with a crime, can face the jury of his or her peers. That's the system. Well, this is un-European. <laughs> uh, and this idea was taken to Freetown, trial by jury, and um, also the introduction of newspapers. Um, you see, here you have the seeds, the beginning of the creation of a middle class, of a new middle class, uh, who would take responsibility for society. Um, I know I'm rushing because you guys have to go off to class in a minute, but I want to relate one story with deep human pathos. Soon arriving, after arriving in West Africa, an African-American, a Nova Scotian settler, went out into the country and arrived in the village from where 15 years earlier he had been taken captive and sold into slavery. An elderly woman, and I'm quoting from the contemporary report, an elderly woman seemed much affected by the sight of this Nova Scotian and spoke to her companions with much agitation. At length, she ran up to him and embraced him. She proved to be his own mother. In these situations, the authorities commented on the moving nature of such reunions where aggrieved individuals found reconciliation. And forgiveness became a force for social progress, recognizing that forgiveness of that order represented a genuine breakthrough for a new society where it is not payback anymore uh, because that only locks you into the past. If you're going to assuage uh, all the wrongs inflicted on you, you're ne never, never going to move from the past. And one of the most important things in the anti-slavery movement, you get this, by the way, in the autobiographies of um, David George, uh, you get it in John Marant, you get it in uh, Henry Washington and others, a slave of George Washington, is the idea that we slaves, uh, former slaves, former captives, and their humanitarian allies in America must fight slavery with every weapon at their disposal. But that the anti-slavery movement must never demonize the slave master must never take away from the slave master 
their humanity because it is that common humanity that allows anti-slavery to call them to account. Uh, I, I've read uh, the testimony of David George on this. It's quite remarkable. Uh, and again, I think this is one of America's contribution uh, to the social sentiments uh, around abolition, around anti-slavery, and a foundation for a new society that was created in Africa. In conclusion, I think we can say that the African-Americans who had been permanently inscribed in the annals of the American Revolution were so inscribed, not by virtue of their pedigree, of their status, but by virtue of the moral position they adopted uh, against slavery. It is very important in the aftermath of that story that happened here in North America to understand how the anti-slavery strategy in Africa succeeded beyond all measure. Christianity had been almost eradicated from North Africa by the coming of Islam in the seventh century. And Christianity really did not penetrate south of the Sahara. The Sahara became a barrier, if you like, to receiving the gospel from the north. It's only by the sea, by this transatlantic movement in the 18th century, that 300 years of missionary effort in sub-Saharan Africa that had proved futile in the end was revived and succeeded and has remained the most potent force in the religion's history. Perhaps it was that idea, I think, that hope, that belief, that change was possible from the lives of those who had been broken and suppressed and alienated from their culture and their society that inspired people like Samuel Hopkins and Esther Stiles to believe that Africa had still a chance, an opportunity to succeed, and that anti-slavery, evangelical movement, and new world ideas had something decisive to say about that change into the future. Thank you. <laughs>